So is this episode going to be about Navalny? Yes and no. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. So Navalny is dead, and certainly speaking personally, that's not just very sad, but very shocking. And it's funny that there's some strange responses in the bizarre shadow world, which is social media. You know, some people saying, for example, well, why are you shocked? Of course he, he was going to die. Well, my answer is, well, first of all, my answer is A, shut up and go away. And B, it's, yes, the odds of Navalny actually walking out of that prison or whichever other colony he was sent to were never that great at all. But it's a, it's a little bit like some kind of, you know, an elderly relative that you know may well go at some point, but that doesn't mean that when it actually happens, it's not a shocking event. And it's also a difficult event in some ways to know what else to say. I mean, I've, I've recorded a, a video yesterday, which was a, you know, a moderately raw kind of response. And there's also a piece of mine out in today's Sunday Times. I'm recording this on Sunday the 18th of February. I'll leave links as usual in the, the, the programme notes. But it's a question of, in a way, OK, what, what can one say that's sort of digging a bit more deeply? Because the truth of the matter is actually how little we really know at the moment. We've been told that he died. Um, various responses in terms of they've said, oh, it was... Um, a blood clot, and then it was sudden death syndrome, which often just simply means we have no real idea. The body hasn't been, at least as of recording, released to Navalny's family. Indeed, they don't even know for sure quite where it is. So, you know, I think on, at this point, this is it's hard to actually talk about Navalny's death with anything other than the kind of artificial confidence of columnists who will say, oh, well, Navalny was killed by Putin now for this reason or whatever. Yeah. Sometimes we actually have to have the humility to say we do not know. And there's also a lot of nonsense about how, well, firstly, it, it, the fact that there's not mass protests demonstrates this sort of sheep-like uh, Russian population actually worship power and violence. It's not. It's such that they, they don't want their heads cracked open by the National Guard or that Navalny was entirely irrelevant because he was just getting, you know, 1% or whatever in, in approval polls or whatever, which is pretty much nonsense. There was actually a very good tweet from the, the journalist Karl Schreck, who noted that you know, if, now, if Navalny was, was quite so insignificant, how come when he stood in the Moscow mayoral elections, he got 27% of the vote compared with 51% for the current incumbent, Sabianin, and that's despite the fact that clearly he had, you know, all the, the media and so forth stacked against him. How come he was able to mobilise protests all across the country back in the day? And how come the Kremlin felt compelled, as he put it, to, to burn his organisation to the ground? You know, I think these are all reasons why it is fairly clear that Navalny was by no means insignificant even though the regime would try to pretend that he doesn't exist. It was interesting that apparently it said that the investigatory committee has opened an investigation into his death. I, mean, I think it's uh, not too cynical of me to say that I'm not really holding my breath for some deep, insightful and penetrating report. It's particularly because I actually went on to the Sledcom, the investigatory committee's own website, and they, they have a lot of, of, of press releases about current cases. I mean, for example, they, they, they have a, you know, a very new press release about the fact that its director, Bastrykin, has been briefed about hooliganism cases by teenagers in Moscow region, but nothing about Navalny. 
The interesting thing is that although no one really wants to sort of take ownership of this particular issue, clearly, nonetheless, and this is something I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment, nonetheless, it's interesting that he could not be entirely ignored. The person whose name Putin is just not even willing to, to utter and who has for so long basically dropped off the Russian official media landscape. Nonetheless, I mean, he had to be, however, in brief cursory nature, nonetheless mentioned on TV news, covered in most of the newspapers. I'm not sure that Rasiska Gazeta, the, the stodgy government paper of record, covered it. But, you know, even if it's in, term, in terms of, oh, look at those nasty Westerners jumping to conclusions and such like, but nonetheless, the fact of Navalny's death has been reported extremely widely. And that, again, is, I think, a, a mark of the man and a mark of the fact that there is a limit to what the state can do. Nonetheless, in general terms, look, I, I, I've made the point, I made the point in, in both video and article, that I don't think this represents some kind of return to Stalinism. Yes, Stalin killed people. But the point is, what really made Stalinism Stalinism was not that Stalin killed people, but that Stalin killed thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. It was the sheer grandiosity of what, for largely but not entirely personal reasons of aggrandizement and power, but Stalin did set out totally to reshape his, the society in which he was now coming to, sort of, to dominate. Whether it was the elite, which was kind of periodically purged, in part precisely to... It's almost like a, I'm trying to think what would be the suitable parallel, a sort of a, a particularly vicious gardener continually pruning to try and get the, the, the right shape of topiary or bonsai that he wants. But the point is exactly this Stalinism operated on a massive scale. Putinism does not. Putin is, Putinism, insofar as there is a Putinism, just like Putin himself, is terribly small in mindset, in ambitions, in goals. And I, th I really think this is more about a banana republic mentality rather than a Stalinist one. Yes, it's kleptocratic in the extreme, and when it has to be, it's murderous in the extreme. But again, all on, on quite sort of small scale. So there's one parallel to throw in, the banana republic. Or in this case, I, this, that, I think given the uh, current spat with Ecuador, between Ecuador and Russia, Ecuador being Russia's largest supplier of bananas, it may well turn out to become a banana republic without the many bananas. But the other parallel, and this is what I really want to dig into a little bit in light of this terrible case, is the degree to which late Putinism is coming to look a lot like the late Soviet Union, the pre well, probably pre-Andropov, but certainly pre-Gorbachev era. So let me just look at some of the parallels, not all of which are accurate. I'm not going to actually say, oh, this is exactly the same. But on the other hand, I do think it's quite useful, not least because it might give us some small analytic tool to think about, well, what happens next? Where does this go? The usual sort of caveat apply, of course. History is not a predictive instrument primarily but it can sometimes help us unlock certain thoughts. So, how is this like late Soviet times? I mean, look, in some ways the, the particular features are, are fairly obvious. It is not just an authoritarianism, but a gerontocratic authoritarianism, in which the elite is getting older and older and continues to refuse to relinquish power to a large degree, precisely because power and perks go together. The point is that, in some ways, I, I kind of, slightly tongue-in-cheek, want to suggest that Russia's greatest problem has always been that it's never had a proper way of basically pensioning people off. If there is no rule of law, then you can't just simply salt money away into your various bank accounts and rely on being able to drain drain them in your twilight years because who knows who could steal it really what russia needs is a combination of the house of lords and proper sort of pension systems and protections for, for people's pension pots but since it doesn't have any of those people 
desperately, tenaciously grasp onto power and hold onto it with their dying fingers. Because exactly, that's the only way they can have security and comfortable life. And that's not good. I mean, it may not be very good for them, but it's certainly not good for the country. Because precisely, it means not only do you not have the refreshment of the elite that brings in new vigour, but also new ideas and new perspectives, but it also means that over time you will inevitably, and we're already beginning to see a few signs of that, have generational tensions as the next generation below sort of wonder about their, their time in, in the sun. And in this respect, again, I think Navalny's problem, well, one of Navalny's many problems in his relationship with the, with the people at the top, Putin and his cronies, was exactly the degree to which he was not one, but I would suggest two political generations detached. I mean, he's 47 when he died. There is clearly a sort of a 50-something, a an early 60-something year political generation who are very much, I would suggest, products of the, the wild 1990s, who do, you know, frankly fear not political irrelevance on a geopolitical scale, the way Putin and co do, but actually they, they, they fear anarchy. And this is one of the reasons why precisely they are willing to keep their heads down and accept the Putinist regime. It's not just about fear of being arrested and having all their, all their, their assets sequestered. It is because they have a genuine fear of what happens if things all go, go to pot. And so in, in this respect, that kind of binds their hands because they're not willing to take risks. Navalny, well, I mean, he, I mean, his generation, and again, all generational debates are crass oversimplifications, caricatures even, but nonetheless, you know, he much more separated from the myths about Soviet power and, and, and Soviet Union's place in the world, but also probably less scarred by the 1990s, greater belief in absolutely the rule of law, as well as clearly sort of, you know, liberal democratic values. Even people of his generation who don't necessarily share his desire to see a liberal social democratic Russia nonetheless are much more likely, as you see in opinion polls, to share his views about the importance of the rule of law, but also to share his views about the inadmissibility of corruption as a sort of an organising principle of the state. Uh, a cynic could say it's because at that level, at that age, they're probably not in quite the same position to embezzle on the same scale. You know, but I think it is also a sort of cultural thing. So, gerontocracy. What else? Well, increasingly now, a militarised state. You know, we, we see what it is, 40% of the state budget going to the war effort. And although the, the, the hope and plan and intent is to reduce that from next year onwards, frankly, this does not look like a war that's likely to end at all soon, sadly. And even, if it, even when it does, sorry, I almost said if it does, of course it will eventually, when it does, assuming Putin is still in power, we probably will see a particular drive to reconstitute the armed forces. I'm not necessarily sure quite so quick and quite so successful as some Western observers are, are, are positing. But nonetheless, you know, there will continue to be a major emphasis on a militarised and thus state-controlled economy. Because if nothing else, what else are you going to do? Demilitarising the economy is difficult and expensive. And there probably won't be the spare money. So there will also be almost an element of political momentum at work. You can't risk there being unemployment. You can't risk people losing fairly well-paid defence industrial factory jobs and the like. So it will continue to be a, a, sort of skew, and a country with an economy skewed towards the defence industrial sector with all the consequent knockover impacts to the civilian sector and the like. And that is linked to another very striking parallel with late Soviet times. This pretense and demand to a global footprint, totally out of keeping with the country's actual standing, soft power, and indeed ideological position. You know, if one thinks of the 1970s, or certainly the later 70s, this is still a, a time in which the Soviet Union openly aspires to compete with the United States as one of the two great poles of the world. And yet, how is it being able to do that? I mean, it's being able to do that, obviously, because of its military strength. A capacity to blow up the world clearly has a certain impact. But also simply because it is desperately buying allies. 
it is increasingly unable to rely on soft power. You know, once upon a time, people could look to the Soviet Union and see it as the, the harbinger and flag holder for a new kind of nation, a new kind of political philosophy, but also a new model for modernization. They looked at how this, this backward agrarian nation had so rapidly been industrialized without really appreciating the degree to which it represented two things. One, the fact of a sort of a rather crude kind of industrialization. It wasn't one in keeping with the, the technologies of the post-war world. It was one about you know, how quickly can you basically smelt iron and hammer it into new shapes but also the degree to which actually the Stalinist model of industrialization depended on all the other bits of Stalinism. The savagely brutal collectivization, the forced industrialization regardless of the human cost, and of course slave labor by the millions. You know, these are all part of a package. You can't have a Stalinist industrial model without the rest. But a lot of people didn't see uh, the, the downsides. They just somehow thought that a red flag and the commitment to Marxism-Leninism and all of a sudden your country is rescued from, from backwardness. Well, look, by the 1970s, that was clearly no longer the case. So instead, the Soviet Union was essentially having to use massive amounts of aid, whether in terms of direct economic aid, we'll build you a dam or whatever, whether it was in terms of military aid, here's, some, here's a lot of tanks, here are some Cuban soldiers to help you put down your, your rebels or whatever else. But the point is, again, it was having to buy its status in a way that the United States, in an, in an age of Coca-Colonization, still wasn't. You know, it still did have vast amounts of soft power, as well as, frankly, vast amounts of money when it also wanted to compete in the same way. So this was the thing. The Soviet Union was, was pretending desperately to be something it wasn't on the global stage, even though that also carried massive costs with it. And just as it was pretending to be Marxist-Leninist, when frankly it was no longer truly ideological in its global programs, you know, it, would make, it would make deals with whoever, it would invade Afghanistan, etc., etc. Well, so too at home. We have the kind of empty mobilization of the population what we could almost think of as sham totalitarianism, in which the state claims to assert certain values and a certain political philosophy, but frankly, its actual capacity to genuinely manifest, let alone convince people of that, just didn't work. So, of course, in your graduate thesis, you had to make sure that the first page included some quotes from Marx or Engels, Lenin or whoever, but then you could pretty much ignore it. You, you've ticked your box, you can move on. You had to, you know, maybe go along to some party meetings or join the Komsomol, the Young Communist League. No one actually expected you really to be a Marxist about that. It was all about pretense, all about show. Things had become essentially ritual. And we see that now. You know, how many of those people who engage in these sort of Z pageants in support of the quote-unquote special military operation actually believe it. My view is it's almost inversely proportional to how involved you are in organising it. Clearly this is, a, this is a time in which there is an, an official line from Moscow, which is not classically ideological, but is much more about primordial nationalism, heavy dose of imperialism, and all of it suffused with a huge victimological commitment to why the world, you know, believing why the world is horrible to us Russians. And people have to genuflect to that. But frankly, how many people really believe it? The state doesn't really care too much. It, it, it pretends to be totalitarian and people pretend to follow its tenets. But in fact, what you end up is a huge, gaping moral void at the heart of it. As you can tell, I'm not feeling in an upbeat mood about the current Russian regime. So those are the kind of the general parameters of why I feel actually late Putinism is looking a lot like the late Soviet era. Let me just take a quick break then, wipe the, the, the froth from my lips and then go on to actually how I think the Navalny case specifically links into this.
Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So, if Putinism is increasingly looking like late, or late Putinism rather, is increasingly looking like late Soviet Russia, Soviet Union, how can we connect that specifically to Navalny and his own situation? Well, first of all, I want to actually look at Navalny himself. And in many ways... Look, it's easy and understandable to criticise his decision to return to Russia after he'd been poisoned with Novichok and had managed to be saved. First of all, it's worth noting by Russian Russians themselves, I mean, the, the pilots who diverted his plane unexpectedly, the paramedics who immediately uh, applied the right uh, remedy on the runway, basically, and then the doctors who then stabilised him, you know, Fortunately, the state had not conceived of the possibility that actually individual Russians would, would act in this way and therefore had not planned accordingly. There is a, a wonderful irony in that it's actually it's Russians who saved Navalny. But the point is, he, he then went back and, you know, there's the whole argument, should he have remained some kind of figure in exile like Belarus's Svetlana Tikhonovskaya to in some ways raise the banner and and be a sort of... I don't know, I wouldn't say prince across the water, but definitely some sense of you know a key figure in, in a sort of exile government. The problem is this, though. It's worth noting, first of all, that unlike Tikhonovskaya, who stood in presidential elections against Lukashenko, which were, were clearly abusive and, and rigged, and therefore can, can make the case, to you know, a moral as well as political case, to being the legitimate president of, of Belarus... Navalny couldn't say that. Navalny can just simply say that he's a moral opposition leader. But in that respect, he has no greater authority than any of the other emigre Russian who claim to speak for the Russian people. And frankly, apart from the fact that if, if past developments are anything to go by, there would have been massive recriminations amongst them struggling for supremacy you know it's not as though all the other figures were saying well if Navalny stays we're willing to basically be his foot soldiers who know so you know actually the, the prospect would have been just for simply for more internecine wrangling among the the emigre anti-Putin forces but also the, the fact of the matter is that he didn't have the opportunity to be able to pr- present himself as a legitimate tribune of, of the Russian people and in any case, he wanted to go back. And this was, on the one hand, an expression of extraordinary bravery. It was an expression of extraordinary bloody-mindedness. I think there was anger. You know, Putin has not only gone after me, he's also gone after my wife earlier. And a sense that, above all, he did not want to be another one of those emigre politicians who, from a comfortable birth in the West, protected by rule of law, possibly sort of working for a think tank or whatever else, encourages Russians to put their lives and their livelihoods on the line by going out and protesting against this thuggish regime. You know, he wanted to show that he was with the Russians, that he actually was willing to put his own life and prospects on the line to be there. And it it could have been a very powerful and, and successful gambit. As it was, well, we'll just have to wait and see how successful it was. Clearly, it was catastrophic eventually for him because he was indeed duly arrested, charged on trumped-up charges uh, and, and sent to prison. But what I would suggest is that actually marked a moment of transition. That was the point at which Navalny stopped being uh, an opposition politician, shall we say, and became a dissident. If we think of the, the Soviet phenomenon of the dissident, it was essentially a much, much more personal thing. It was the individual who said, I will not accept this. 
I am not willing to compromise with the state, compromise my own values. You can do what you want with me. You can put me in a, in a gulag. You can expel me from the country. You can visit myriad petty harassments upon me. But I am not willing to comply. And I think this is the key thing. A politician seeks to, as it were, change the world, or at least change his or her particular part of it. A dissident just simply says, I am not willing to change myself in order to avoid the consequences. I am going to be true to my own values. And look, one, one, can, one can argue about actually you know, how effective, you know, is, is a dissident a revolutionary? I would suspect not, even though dissidents can bring about revolutionary developments. But the point is, this, this is what had happened. Yes, Navalny still maintained contact with the outside world. We had all these various uh, you know, strands of social media posts and things sent out via his, his lawyers. But essentially, at this point, he was more of a moral example. He was someone who was still willing to go back. Someone who in many ways was demonstrating the, the ultimate in patriotism by being willing to go back, surrender himself into the hands of the regime that had repressed and indeed tried to kill him simply because he was not willing to change. So I think this is it. Actually, you know, we've had a period in which I would suggest that post-Soviet Russia has not really had dissidents. It has had revolutionaries and opposition politicians. Now, as the space for any kind of politics shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, now we're also seeing this, this late Soviet phenomenon of the dissident instead. And that also means that we have to go back to an era where we're essentially reading dissent between the lines. Precisely the days when it was safe or possible for people to publicly and openly, from inside Russia, express their disagreements with the state, contradict its ideology, challenge its propaganda. You know, all of that actually, again, is, is shrinking. But, you know, people will still find ways. People will still find ways of pushing back. And this is something I touched on very briefly in my Sunday Times article. As an example of that, I was fascinated by a particular passage in an article in Moskovsky Komsomolets, which is uh, you know, a tabloid newspaper that, frankly, you know, tends to cleave fairly close to the official line. Um, and you know, I think we'd, we would generally regard it as kind of pro-government because, well, it's dangerous to be anything else. And yet, within you know, a fairly solid, it's a sort of bannered ex exclusive article by one of their veteran columnists who's received awards and the like, about, you know, under the title, The Political Consequences of Navalny's Death. And, I mean, it has the subtitle, in short, in the sphere of real politics, they will not exist. But there's an interesting article that, while on the surface, cleaving to the official line that in some ways Navalny is not really important, it's just the, the nasty West that is building him up precisely as a way of trying to, you know, threaten and undermine the Kremlin... And you know, isn't it you know, isn't it suspicious the degree to which they they you know, the West quickly claims and assumes that it knows that Putin's responsible? You know, blah blah blah, all of that, and even draws a sort of slightly sort of bizarre parallel with between Navalny and Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran. Not a parallel, I think we'd often read, but suggesting that you know when he returned from Germany, he had a vision that he would be. Let me see. As it says, acting according to the method of the Iranian Ayatollah Khamenei in 1979, a triumphant return from political exile, jubilant crowds at the airport, the current government folds like a house of cards. Well, I mean, let's be honest, I don't think there was any expectation on Navalny's part that, that was the case. And in particular, it basically says, and anyway, then when the, the special military operation began, then frankly, Navalny became irrelevant. But... What I did find really interesting, though, was just one particular passage in the middle of it. And it could well be that I'm reading too much into it. But what this actually says, as I said, given that it's, it's, it's penned by a, you know, a pretty veteran columnist, and it will have gone through the, the, the appropriate sort of editing process, and it hasn't changed. I mean, this, th this came out yesterday, and it's still there today. What does he say? Let me just sort of go through it. But then Navalny made a mistake. 
which other figures in modern Russian history have also made, such as Mikhail Khodorkovsky, recognised as a foreign agent, and Yevgeny Prigozhin. Again, slightly weird to be bracketed with both of those people. He stopped adequately assessing the real structure of Russian politics and began to perceive himself as a person who's literally two steps away from the greatest power, the highest power. A mistake, a fatal mistake. And this is the important bit. The Russian political system is structured in such a way that if the government maintains control over the security forces, if it is self-confident, if it is ready to make tough and unpopular decisions, then it is absolutely impossible to defeat it. Now, I found that absolutely fascinating because essentially what this is saying is not the government is legitimate, the government is popular, the government is, the government is you know, impossible to shake precisely because it is an expression of the true views of the Russian people. No, what it is saying is precisely, look, you can't mess with this government because so long as it's got control of the security apparatus and so long as it's willing to use it ruthlessly, then that's it, it's in power. I mean, that is as stark a credo of the Banana Republic as one could imagine. And it also actually reminds me precisely of what Lenin, good old Lenin, Lenin is always with us, Lenin said that essentially you know, what is necessary for the success of the revolution is a critical absence of will on the part of the ruling elite. So in other words, so long as the ruling elite has the capacity and the will to use the violence at its capacities at its disposal, then it's impossible for the revolution to succeed. I mean, is this dissent coded between the lines, an article ostensibly criticising Navalny for being a foolish irrelevance that is actually saying he was a foolish irrelevance precisely because we have a thuggish regime which is perfectly able and willing to use violence to maintain power. I honestly don't know, but I, I could not help but stop with on that. And particularly, look, I'm a, let's put it politely, a hardy old veteran of the Russia-watching scene. You know, I cut my teeth, I did my PhD in Soviet times and spent a lot of my time, far too much of my time, going through Soviet newspapers and other accounts. And the thing that struck me was actually one could often find a rich, dense vein of anti-government sentiment and analysis, but it was always encoded. It was encoded between the lines. Sometimes it was it was done in the sense of historical parallels. So you were reading something that was ostensibly about other times and other countries, and yet you knew what it was really saying. And that's precisely what we're currently seeing about some of the debates which we find about the Soviet war in Afghanistan clearly being mobilized to actually be a way of talking about what's going on in Ukraine at a time when you can't honestly talk about what's going on in Ukraine. So sometimes it's in terms of historical parallels. Sometimes it's in terms of putting words in other people's mouths, like sort of basically saying, well, the West are saying X, Y, and Z, simply as a way of making sure that X, Y, and Z gets into the, the public discourse. But again, I, I do wonder if in an age of increasing censorship, increasing attempts at media control, just as the dissident is back, so too is the dissenting um, habits or tactics that we saw in late Soviet times of people trying to insert genuine views and genuine analysis and genuine exposés into public circulation through these rather sort of subversive ways. But of course, the state will push back. We are already seeing increasing censorship and particularly the, the kind of, again, very, very late Soviet style of censorship by deterrence. That you pick a certain number of people and you come down so heavily and so performatively heavily on them that you essentially try and deter other people from following their example. You don't want to basically lock up a thousand people if by dealing with one person in a particularly draconian way, you deter 999 of them. And in line with that, and this is the sort of tactic which was very much uh, pioneered by Yuri Andropov, 
who became General Secretary, but before then was a viciously and ruthlessly thoughtful head of the KGB, of the so-called prophylactic chat. Bringing someone in, someone who's at that point where they're just nearing the level at which they're going to become a genuine inconvenience. And just bring them in for a chat, a chat where you don't actually necessarily have to threaten them. You just make it clear that they are on your radar, that you're aware of them, their family, their hopes and so forth, and you could mess with them. You know, by saying, oh, I hear your son's hoping to go or planning to go to such and such a university next year. You are, in effect, saying, unless we stop it. That kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the more sophisticated type of uh, sort of mafia loan shark practice. But the point is, we, we are seeing that increasingly happening now. People are either being called in for conversations with some sort of genial major in the local FSB, or other ways in which people are having signalled to them, you're close to that line. Do you really want to cross it? In that situation, probably most people won't. So, you know, we are increasingly seeing the late Soviet methodology of oppression. But does that mean there is absolutely no opportunity to resist? And I would say no, but again, we have to understand it in, in, in late Soviet terms. Essentially, what we're going to see is low-level, subversive, bottom-up resistance. There's no room for... I was about to say large opposition politicians, um, which implies somehow kind of um, overweight radicals. No, I meant large opposition movements, or at least not until very sort of a late stage in, in, in the process. Instead, what's going to happen is, is what we're already beginning to see. There are some particular sort of sectoral protest movements which, which have a degree of freedom to operate that others don't and i'm thinking particularly of soldiers mothers just as we saw in times of the, the afghan and then chechen wars soldiers mothers protesting about what's happening to their kids or for fear that their kids will end up going to ukraine do have a certain degree of protection it's it's frankly it, it's not good telly to go and be sending your your riot police in to go and truncheon down a bunch of grandmothers and to a degree it may well be that where they go Others can in due course follow. But more broadly, what it is is exactly that we will see small-scale resistance galvanised by whether it's the war. It was Afghanistan for the Soviets. Obviously, it's, it's Ukraine now. Or more likely, just general hardships. The fact of you know the social contract clearly has been broken. And whether it's you don't have enough, uh, you know, you, you don't have heating for your house in the middle of winter or you're spending an increasing proportion of your disposable income on food. Remember, by now, the majority of Russians do not have any savings left at all. Or else it's disillusion. We, we, we shouldn't underestimate the degree to which, on some kind of level, people may not have believed Marxism-Leninism back in the day. But they did nonetheless accept some kind of sense that there was an ideology, there were values, there was a purpose, that even the hardships they were going, going through were for, a, for some kind of grander cause. I, I remember again going back to doing my, my PhD in the very last years of the Soviet Union, at a time when life was absolutely miserable for, for most Soviet citizens. But nonetheless, there was, even then, even still in the period... 88 to 91, there was still a certain vestigial sense that surely, surely everything should have meant something. And thus, anger and despair when they discover not. When, for example, Gorbachev's Glasnost, his openness campaign, meant that so many of the blank pages of history, as they were called, were finally opened up, particularly but not exclusively about Stalinism. And one realises that they're not blank, they're actually blood-soaked. That sense of we were always lied to, that sense of it, it's all been for nothing. Well, again, I think we're going to see that now. What Putin sold to the Russian people was this sense that they had been, once again, they, they were back up off their knees and they could assert for Russia a, a place in the world that it deserved without costing them anything. That's a crucial point. 
Putin did not offer blood, toil, sweat and tears. Putin actually offered them an easy route to, to great power status. Now they are finding that it, it, it's not quite so simple. So I, I don't think we, we should underestimate disillusion and anger at being basically lied to. But again, you know, I think this is it. What we will see is small-scale sabotage, the sorts of things we're already seeing, actually, in, in support of the Ukrainian war effort. A lot of these cases of railway junction boxes being firebombed or draft offices or whatever are indeed encouraged, facilitated or even engineered by the Ukrainians. True. But a fair number are not. And it's not necessarily people who actually think the Ukrainians are on the side of right. It's more that they are opposed to what their own regime is doing and they just tend to assume that anything that undermines that is good. So I think we, we have to recognise that, that there, there is already and there will continue to be a lot of this small-scale bottom-up resistance, which in and of itself is not going to bring down the regime, of course. But the point is it will be waiting. There will be a huge amount of protest potential that is waiting for someone to actually be able to bring it all together. And this, after all, was what made Navalny dangerous to the Soviet regime. <laughs> there you go, Freudian slip, Soviet regime, the Putin regime. It was precisely the point at which he really made that decisive step from being one of the more charismatic, but nonetheless still encapsulated representatives and leaders of an essentially middle-class metropolitan political movement. You know, big in Moscow, big in St. Petersburg. To actually trying to set up a nationwide organisation and one in particular that was going to actually be able to connect to a whole variety of new constituencies. The working poor, people who actually you know, did feel that they were losing out even under, under the sort of Putin regime. The so-called budgetniki, people who are the sort of you know, lower level employees of the state, teachers, civil servants and that kind of thing, who likewise you know, are, 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 were not really being given a, a fair shake. Generally, people who are angry about corruption, I think this is the interesting thing, with, with corruption, Navalny had this one issue which was absolutely capable of cohering across regional, ethnic and class boundaries. Because everybody, it doesn't matter who you're speaking to, it doesn't matter if you're speaking to a, a university professor in Moscow or you know, a tram driver in Novosibirsk. He said not knowing if Novosibirsk has trams, but there you go, bus driver if need be. They will all have some awareness that the Vlasti, the powerful, are ripping them off and enjoying a, a privileged life at their expense. And they will all have personal experiences and personal tales of corruption. So, I mean, in this respect, Putin refaced uh, an enemy who not only had the capacity to articulate what was a potentially incredibly powerful message. I mean, you know, we can't forget, it's not just that Navalny was an anti-corruption campaigner. He was also a very charismatic, fluent one. And now he was trying to reach out and use that as the basis to bring together a wider, what I call the coalition of the fed up. That was really crucial. And even the fact that actually Navalny was reaching out to, for example, the police. I mean, it's quite interesting, actually, one, one, one can see the degree to which he was presenting himself to the police exactly as their defender. He encouraged, for example, the setting up of police trade unions, and he spoke to those you know, ordinary cops who often did have a deep, and do still have, a deep discomfort at the fact that they may well have joined because they did believe in the job, and they do believe in the job. But they are also aware that part of that is that they are supporting this kleptocratic regime. It's not necessarily why you put on the uniform. So, you know, for all of these reasons, Navalny's potential to be the figure that can uh, unite this coalition of the fed up is, I think, the point at which they went from just simply trying to marginalise him and all kinds of, I don't want to call them petty, but shall I say, you know, sm smaller scale individual acts against him to deciding, no, we have to kill or silence this man. That's what made him dangerous. It's that building up of this, this bottom-up resistance, this bottom-up sense that something has to change. That was very much a feature of late Soviet times. And in many ways, it was released, but in inchoate fashion, 
by Gorbachev's reforms and Glasnost, and as a result, in many cases, was in, in effect captured by nationalists, who were, the, who were the ones who, in their own constituent republics, were able to actually sort of capitalise on, frankly, a, a, a protest mood that could have been directed in all sorts of other directions. But again, that gives us a sense of the challenge. So the last point I, I want to talk about is, OK, well, if, if it actually looks then as in some ways we are in, with all the caveats about drawing these kind of comparisons, you know, this is not a perfect comparison by any means. But nonetheless, if, if we are in sort of late Soviet times, where do things go from here? Well, you know, the one thing is obviously that the uh, built up of protest potential could in due course, uh, and this is obviously kind of connects with the Kaliningrad um, crisis simulation I mentioned in the most recent podcast, to some kind of mass organic protest movement suddenly arising. One can look at the Solidarity Trade Union movement in Poland, though there we can't also f forget the twin importance of both nationalism, you know, pushing back against the, the evil foreign Russian occupiers, but also the Catholic Church as a, a, a sort of crucial force in also facilitating the building of this, this wider platform, which obviously neither apply in, in Russia. But the point is, what about the sort of the potential leaders that could come within the system? I mean, one of them, of course, is you know, the prospects for a Gorbachev figure, which seems astonishingly unlikely at the moment, but we also have to acknowledge how astonishingly unlikely it seemed a few years before Gorbachev was in power. I still don't think it's going to happen, more, more is the shame. But what I would say is we should remember two things. First of all, who was Gorbachev? Yes, I mean, he was a reformer, absolutely. But he didn't start as that. In many ways, he's a figure who was radicalised through the experience of actually trying to bring even limited reform to the Soviet system, and particularly the degree to which he came to see the Communist Party itself, which originally he wanted to save and regarded as you know, a central instrument of his programme, and increasingly he would come to see actually as the chief obstacle. But the point is, until he was in power, what was Gorbachev's background? He was an administrator. He was a local party boss in Stavropol region. In other words, he came from what we would think in, in, in our terms to be the technocratic side of things. Yes, he was obviously he was a party boss, but essentially the party and the state in this context were, were, were one and the same. And indeed, one could also look at Boris Yeltsin, the, the figure who, I mean, I'm absolutely not a fan of Boris Yeltsin, but one has to recognise that he certainly was the assassin of the Communist Party system. But his background was that he was a fairly heavy-handed and you know, moderately competent technocratic party boss in Sverdlovsk, as Yekaterinburg was, was still known at the time. So actually, you know, what, what's worth saying is that the reformers, they don't necessarily look like radicals when they first come to power. And they tend to come from the technocratic and administrative side of things. And again, look, again, you know, all, all the warnings, but, you know, could, could a Mishustin, Prime Minister Mishustin, or Moscow Mayor Sobyanin, or all these other sort of potential figures who are, are sometimes raised, who precisely come from the technocratic side of things, possibly be a sort of Gorbachevian figure? I think, frankly, that's probably the best hope for a sort of a, a liberal reformer to emerge in, in the next political generation. And again, when we say liberal reformer, I, I don't think we're talking about, you know, full democracy or whatever. I think we're talking just simply about limited moves towards rule of law and the like. But that's, that's the kind of straightforward one. I mean, there, there are three other figures that I think are worth raising, each of which because it offers a, a different potential route um, for, for Russia. There's a Yuri Andropov figure. Now, I, I'm, I am uh, probably rather dubiously fascinated still with, with Yuri Andropov who was, after all, on the one hand, you know, a figure capable of ruthless repressions, very much, though, who modernised the KGB, turned it from being the sort of Stalin-era world of torturers and knuckle-dragging brutalists into a much more effective and, and frankly, sort of cerebral organisation that it tried to forestall rather than repress protests. 
and it became a place where many of the best and the brightest of the Soviet system would want to go to, to a large extent because of the perks and the opportunities, but also because of a sense of that it was their kind of environment. Now, Yuri Andropov was not, I would suggest, either nice or liberal. But nonetheless, he recognised the importance of some kind of modernization, which inevitably did mean a certain liberalization of the Soviet system if it was to survive. When he became general secretary, well, essentially from pretty much the first, he was essentially on dialysis. So he realised it wasn't going to be him who would be doing this. And he was the man who built up the reform coalition that included and eventually elevated Gorbachev. Without Yuri Andropov, in my opinion, there would not have been a Gorbachev, or not a Gorbachev general secretaryship. And so what, what Andropov would, would, would stand for is in some ways a kind of moderately liberal but also ruthlessly focused modernization program, which would also carry a, a significant anti-corruption element. This is one of the reasons why the Soviet elite were terrified of Andropov. And they'd really, you know, although they felt there was no rival candidate, they voted for Andropov holding their noses because they were terrified of what he, a relatively uncorrupt figure within the system, what he meant for them, and, and, and rightly so, because he did institute considerable purges of, of the worst of the figures within it. So, you know, maybe what we will see is a kind of modernising reforming that is really geared towards, yes, cutting down on corruption and, above all, trying to kind of fix the economic system rather than necessarily going for political liberalization. And in the, you know, this in the Times, this has been described as a Singaporean model or indeed a Pinochet's Chile model. Again, parallels don't necessarily work. But nonetheless, you know, one, one, one could see that. And the interesting thing is Yuri Anthropov also actually was exploring ways of trying to pull the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan. Now, it, it didn't happen for a whole variety of reasons, but the point is, one can have you know, a, a, a ruthless and, and clearly nationalistic figure who nonetheless appreciates that it's also in, you know, worth improving relations with the West. So that's one potential model. And look, I, I hesitate to kind of peg any of these figures to potential current Russian politicians. Um, but nonetheless, you know, one, one can see that there are, I think there are potentially Andropovian figures currently around in, in the upper echelons of the Russian system. Or, of course, we could get someone like Heydar Aliyev, who was the party boss of Azerbaijan at the time, and although he eventually became head of an independent Azerbaijan and basically handed the country as a gift to his kid, who is the, the current ruler of, of Azerbaijan, um, but nonetheless, again, he he was in his time as a strong contender to to succeed and was a sort of a challenger to um, to Gorbachev. And indeed, there was also Romanov, the party boss of what was then Leningrad, who and in fact who in fact was a very distant descendant of of the emperors. But the point is, both of them stood for essentially not modernization. So you know, if, if Andropov is modernization and repression. Aliyev and Romanov were basically on the repression side of things. That the ailments that, that the Soviet Union suffered could be dealt with just simply by kind of cranking up demands and if need be, you know, basically using enough repression to ensure it happens. We could see that. It doesn't work, by the way. It actually would, would, it, it would have accelerated the collapse of the Soviet Union. But nonetheless... It's still entirely possible that actually in a post-Putin era, we'll get someone who thinks that just cracking the whip will be enough. And that will be disastrous for Russia. But then there's a final option that I, that I want to make. Konstantin Chernyenko. You may not even remember Konstantin Chernyenko. He scarcely deserves it. He was the party leader, the general secretary, who followed after Andropov not really because he had any talents of his own, but precisely because the, the Reform Coalition was not yet in a strong enough position to be able to actually get, um, get Gorbachev, the general secretaryship. And Chenyenko seemed the next best thing, because yes, he was a conservative figure, but he had one key asset. That asset was emphysema. In other words, they knew that he was going to die soon. So the thought was, well, look, we will elevate Chenyenko, 
we will force him to accept Gorbachev as his deputy and implicitly heir apparent, and we know that he's going to die soon. Then we'll have a second proper you know, crack at, at elevating Gorby. There was this desperate attempt in, the, in that one year where Chenyenko was, was leader to try and create a sort of bit of a personality cult around him, which was difficult when there was no real personality. And there was actually a sort of a tongue-in-cheek informal competition among the foreign press corps in Moscow to come up with a headline that, that best satirised this. And because Chenyenko had actually been born in, the Kazakhstan, in Kazakhstan and had been known to play the balalaika, the, um, sort of the best headline that emerged was he came from Alma Ata with a banjo on his knee. But anyway, I digress. The point is, it is entirely possible that, in fact, you will end up with someone who just simply tries desperately to hold on to things as they were, to maintain the, the rule of the gerontocracy, and to hold the line against any of this scary reform, even if it's just for a year, and more to the point, even if it's just to their death. There is that après le déluge, that sense of, well, look, who cares what happens when I go? Let me at least just maintain things as they are while I'm here. So, to conclude, and I said this, this, is, this has not really been about Navalny, because if nothing else, well, it's not just that I don't know what more to say about it at this stage, but frankly, it's still really very raw, and I'm still, well, very angry, and also not wanting to just simply say stuff for the sake of saying stuff about the valley, which is why I've spun it out to, to talk about the sort of late Soviet parallels. But in this context, the important thing is this. Although I would wish it could have been otherwise, Navalny was, in my opinion, never going to be the Russian president. On the other hand, the movement that he created and that was then repressed, and the lessons he showed about what could happen if, as and when, someone unites the coalition of the Fed up, I think are going to be really important in the future. It's certainly the nightmare of the Kremlin, this, this, this unification of the coalition. And it's one of the primary functions of the domestic security apparatus, is to ensure it never really happens. But likewise, this, I think, you know, may well be considered in the future by others as an opportunity knowing that that protest potential is there. And that's crucial because, and look, I know this just sounds a little bit mawkish, but the th one of the key things about Navalny w was his optimism, was his ridiculous, unrealistic, yet also unyielding optimism, even from the confines of you know, an Arctic labour camp. I mean, when, you, when, when, sorry, when you're at a penal colony, which is known as Arctic or Polar Wolf, you know, you should know that you're not really in, in for a fun time. And yet he was still willing, you know, able and willing to be joking the day before his death in video calls with, uh, during a, an appeals hearing. So in that context, this is fundamentally a struggle between hope and hopelessness. The regime wants to create the sense that there can be no change. It's all very Orwellian, all very well, 1984, you know, the future simply is as the image of a boot stamping on a human face forever. That sense of hopelessness is in many ways the greatest asset for any kind of authoritarian regime. That sense of it's not worth struggling because nothing could be any better. So just give up. That is worth any number of Amon, riot police or whatever else. Whereas Navalny stood for a ridiculous and unrealistic and yet also irrepressible sense that things can happen. Things can get go for the, from the current situation to the beautiful Russia of tomorrow, which is what he was, was preaching. That is in many ways the same kind of incohate optimism which continued to motivate those people in late Soviet times who thought and hoped and worked for things to change. Whether we're talking about figures like Gorbachev and his foreign minister Shabadnadze, who honestly believed that the system could reform itself. 
whether we're talking about people within the various constituent uh, republics who thought they could be free of Moscow, whether it's, because, whether it's in the form of people who actually were willing to, to champion specific issues, environmental causes, workers' rights, you name it, whether it was people who just wanted their kids home from Afghanistan, but whatever else the state was able to do, it was never ultimately able to strangle that sense of optimism, strangle that often good-humoured and sometimes bad-tempered, but nonetheless in a ubiquitous belief that things could get better. And so long as that is the case, then Navalny is, has not wasted his life, however terrible its end has been, and nor will he be f forgotten, nor should he be. Thanks very much. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>